I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meded is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. Do you realise there's a disease that affects approximately 5% of Australians, is increasing in severity, is responsible for blindness, amputations, cardiovascular disease, and is also a large factor in causation of death? No, I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about diabetes. And this is a silent killer that's increasing in severity. Good day and welcome to Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, a program born during COVID times to emulate that general chit-chat and banter around the hospital with the idea of educating the medical student and GP alike. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide, and it's my pleasure to bring Aussie Med Ed to you. And in this series, we've taken a different approach where we ask consultants specialising in their area to address a particular problem and answer the questions on how they would both assess and treat that condition from a medical student or general practitioner's perspective. Once again, welcome to Aussie Med Ed, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast has been produced and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. And in this episode, we're lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Emily Meyer, a consultant endocrinologist at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and the Queen Elizabeth Hospitals in Adelaide. She's a clinical lecturer at the University of Adelaide, and she's currently completing her PhD studies in the targeted delivery of cortisol in septic shock. Emily's going to talk to us about diabetes in general, about the diagnosis, investigations, and the current treatment plans, and also give us an example of a typical patient. Welcome, Dr. Emily Meyer. Well, thanks for the invitation, Gavin. Very excited to be here. Well, it's fantastic to have you on. It's a, such a big topic, and I know it affects me when I'm actually doing orthopedic surgery. I'm always concerned about a diabetic patient, both initial management and post-operative care. Tell us, what actually is the prevalence of diabetes at the moment, and is it going up in Australian society? Yes, well, the diabetes prevalence, this is all comers, like all types of diabetes, is estimated to be about 1 in 20 adults in Australia. So that's about 5% or a total of 1.2 million Australians have diabetes and the prevalence is increasing. It increases particularly with with age and our ageing population but is also increasing because of our of lifestyle factors and the fact that obesity is also increasing. Diabetes is more common in males, about 5%, than females, about 4%. Type 2 diabetes accounts for the majority, so about 85%, 12% being type 1, and then 3% being other types of diabetes, including modi genetic causes, pancreatic insufficiency, and medication-induced. With respect to gestational diabetes, that's about 18% of all mothers in Australia. And really, diabetes is on the rise, like I said, due to lifestyle factors. So 60% of the Australian adult population is overweight or obese. And that is increasing about 5% annually, which is paralleling the increase in diabetes. Gestational diabetes is also increasing in prevalence. It's, I would say, the new pandemic. Well, those figures are truly amazing. And you've already touched upon the classification of type 1 and type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes. But where does like pre-diabetes fit into this picture as well? Yes. Well, I I can't tell you off the top of my head the statistics for pre-diabetes. We don't have that. And largely because I don't know that that is something that's really medically reported sufficiently to obtain an accurate figure. But there is significantly an increase in in pre-diabetes and pre-diabetes is important to identify because that is the best point, you know, obviously prevention of diabetes. 
But if you identify someone as being pre-diabetic, implementing lifestyle factors can turn that around and prevent someone from developing diabetes. There are lots of different classifications of diabetes. I mean, ultimately, the diabetes culminates in the elevation of blood glucose, but there are different pathogenesis that result in the ultimate increase in blood glucose. So that's why we have a classification system. So you've got your type 1 or LADA, so that's like latent autoimmune diabetes in the adult, which is due to beta cell destruction leading to an absolute insulin deficiency. More common in our younger population, pediatric, adolescent and young adults, but it is also prevalent in the older population. I've admitted a patient to hospital who's in their 80s with a new presentation of type 1 diabetes in DKA. Rare, but can occur later in life. Type 2 diabetes, as I said, is accounts for about 85% of all people with diabetes. It results from an insulin resistance with a relative insulin deficiency. Patients can also develop a secretory deficiency in insulin over time. But really that's where a situation where someone's insulin does not work very well at the cellular level. They develop insulin resistance. They have higher levels of insulin production to try and push that glucose into cells. And ultimately that fails and you get a rise in blood glucose. There's gestational diabetes. There is mature onset diabetes of the young, which is MODI, a group of genetic causes. There's diseases of the exocrine pancreas. So things like pancreatitis, pancreatic trauma, people having pancreatic but their pancreas removed for various reasons, pancreatic cancer, cystic fibrosis, and even hemochromatosis. So the deposition of iron in the pancreas can all result in diabetes. And then there's, you know, the rare but exciting things like there are endocrinopathies that can cause diabetes. So acromegaly or Cushing's can, can, can cause diabetes, drug induced, so glucocorticoids predominantly, thiazides, alpha interferon, and diazoxide, the common drugs that would cause drug-induced diabetes. And then more recently, we've actually seen diabetes as a result of COVID-19. So what happens is the COVID-19 virus can actually gain entry into the insulin-secreting beta cells through the ACE receptor. And as a result, the beta cells start to fail and these patients present with diabetes or DKA in hospital as a result of an active COVID-19 infection. Well, that's quite an expansive list of causes for diabetes. For the medical students, to try and make it more simple, if we were going to put major headings for them, how would you divide those up for us, Emily? Yes, I would say there's there's your classical type 1, there's your type 2, there's your GDM, gestational, there's pancreatic insufficiency, and then there can be your drug-induced. Well, that's a great summary and it's a good way of thinking about it. Looking at the type 1s or the juvenile causes of diabetes, is that autoimmune-related or does it relate to actually the actual pancreatic cells not developing in the first place? There are rare sort of, um, you know, neonatal causes of diabetes where people might not have a pancreas due to various infections in utero or genetic reasons as to why the pancreas hasn't developed. But really a juvenile diabetes is classically a type 1 diabetes, so that's autoimmune destruction of your your islet cells and your beta cells in the pancreas resulting in a, a failure of insulin production. Drugs that we use for autoimmune disease, such as in the rheumatoid conditions, are they used to treat juvenile diabetes in the early onset? Does that have any effect in actually reducing the incidence or the effect of juvenile? Good question. There's a lot of research in the use of um, like 
immune modulating therapies to see if that can stave off or prevent type 1 diabetes in vulnerable individuals. Um, now, there's been nothing really great in, you know, that have been of um, major fruition in that space. So that's still a research question. There are research studies occurring in that space, but there's nothing that we have as clinicians um, as, um, as a therapy tool to try and use as an immune modulating therapy for, to, to prevent the onset of type 1 diabetes. Hopefully that's something that can occur in the future. That's excellent. Now, moving on, to form the diagnosis, what are the symptoms we're looking out for in making the diagnosis? What investigations do we perform? And where does oral glucose tolerance test fit into this picture? Is that still the mainstay of investigations or are there other tests now that are used? I'd like to let you know that Aussie Medhead is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. Okay, so that's a good question. There are different diagnostic categories. So classically, in a non-pregnant individual, the diagnosis of diabetes based on biochemistry, so blood work, is having an oral glucose tolerance test. That's where someone has an overnight fast. Um, They have a fasting glucose, blood draw for a fasting glucose they drink highly sugar, sugary drink that's about seven, that is 75 grams of glucose. And then a blood draw happens at two hours to look at what we call the postprandial blood glucose. If their fasting glucose is above seven or their two hour glucose post that um, blood glucose post that 75 gram glucose load is above 11, that's diagnostic for diabetes. If they um, have two random blood glucoses, so say you've had a patient who has had you know, blood work done previously and you just notice that their blood glucose retrospectively has been above 11 on two occasions and they might have some symptoms of hyperglycemia, so that's thirst, polyuria, weight loss, blurry vision, then that alone can be a diagnosis for diabetes without the oral glucose tolerance test. Or we now use, can use the HbA1c, which if is above the threshold of 6.5%, indicates a diagnosis of diabetes. The HbA1c is glycated hemoglobin, so it's the amount of glucose that's actually stuck to a red blood cell. Now, the lifespan of a red blood cell is 120 days. So we use the HbA1c and estimate that roughly that's an indication of what the glucose levels have been like in an individual over sort of three months or so. There are caveats to using the HbA1c, so the glycated hemoglobin, as a diagnostic tool. It can be falsely low in various situations. So if someone is anemic or had low blood red blood cell count or has high red blood cell turnover um, or if someone's got chronic kidney disease, or hemoglobinopathies, you won't get an accurate HbA1c that's reflective of actual blood glucose levels. Now, in our gestational diabetes, in screening or our gestational diabetes patient, we do do a oral glucose tolerance test at about between 24 and 28 weeks of gestation. The glucose cutoffs for that are tighter 
than that of a non-pregnant adult. So we aim for a fasting glucose. If a fasting glucose is above 5.1, a one-hour glucose is greater than 10, or a two-hour glucose post the 75-gram glucose load is greater than 8.5, that indicates that someone has gestational diabetes. So they've got a tighter cutoff than that of the stock standard adult diabetes. Thanks, Emily. But with respect to the gestational diabetes, 20% being positive is a large number. Does that mean it does a routine screening test for every pregnant lady to double check that she doesn't have gestational diabetes or is it just done on a particular patient at high risk? No, it is now standard practice that every female that's pregnant at 24, 28 weeks should have a oral glucose tolerance test. So it's screening for everybody. That's amazing. So certainly changed over the years. So Well, in my time, you're right, in my time, when I was training as a registrar, the glucose cutoffs for gestational diabetes changed and lowered. So what happened is there was, I think, a huge, because the cutoffs were lowered and that was based on evidence that there were better outcomes for mum and baby with tighter glucose control and they were obviously missing a group of women who had gestational diabetes with the higher cutoffs, that actually increased the incidence of gestational diabetes significantly by about 30% at the time, all of a sudden these mothers that were not previously classed as having GDM now have GDM because of the tighter cutoffs. Now, coming back to your question about how did people with diabetes present, it is different depending on the type of diabetes, but if we look at type 2 diabetes, so most people with type 2 diabetes are asymptomatic and just present with hyperglycemia on a routine laboratory test the classic there are classic symptoms with the hyperglycemia they can get so they might have polyuria and that's because the kidneys reabsorb glucose in the nephron and the tubules but that glucose threshold is reached and maxed and as a result you get a spill of glucose into the urine and with that you get water drawn out as well so you get polyuria you get dehydrated, then you get polydipsia, so increased thirst. People get blurred vision. And the reason for that is that the optic disc actually absorbs glucose and swells. And so you get a blurred vision as a result. And often you can get weight loss. In type people with type 2 diabetes, the weight loss is often quite mild and only really noticed when it's by the patient, when it's directly asked by the clinician. Other presentations might be they get recurrent infections, so recurrent skin infections, genital urinary infections or abscesses or things like that. So these sort of symptoms could also be quite common in someone's overweight. I suspect in this sort of case it's worth checking the blood glucose level or organising an oral glucose tolerance test. Is that correct? That's right. And I think really our, if, you, if, we, if you have a patient that meets the BMI for obesity, definitely they should have regular screening. Even if people are overweight, they should have regular screening. Very rarely, but it can occur, people don't, patients don't present to hospital with diabetes until they're sort of in a hyperglycemic emergency and they're really quite sick. So that's like a hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. That's more common in someone who has type 2 diabetes. In type 2 with type 1, obviously the, the major medical emergency is diabetic ketoacidosis where the, there's an absolute lack of insulin and as a result the you sort of go, go from a switch to ketones as a source, liver produces ketones as a source of energy and the ketones actually result in a change in pH and, and the acidotic state. People with type 1, I mean, often they might have a family history of type 1. 
they sort of present more severely with symptoms of polyuria, polydipsia, fatigue and weight loss. But often people with type 1 might have their first, they might sort of have their first presentation with a diabetic ketoacidosis and admission to hospital, and which often requires HGU or ICU for treatment. Okay, so once you've made the diagnosis, the next step is to start treatment. I believe the treatment varies between type 1 and type 2, with type 1 trying to replace the insulin while type 2 to reduce the level of glucose in the system. That's right. So before you get to treatment, you do need to be sure that you're dealing with type 1 or type 2 because people with type 1, they can only survive with insulin. If you don't give them insulin, they're going to end up in DKA. So if you're in doubt, start someone on insulin and you can always send off autoimmune islet cell antibodies so that's a panel of four antibodies and if they if you've got type 1 diabetes it will come back positive and if you don't very rarely can you have antibody negative type 1 but predominantly probably dealing with someone who has type 2 diabetes and you can safely go down non-insulin type therapies. Sorry Emily I'll just interrupt you there for a second because I'm just amazed that there's these antibody tests available I love doing these podcasts you learn so much every time but when do these come out are they a new invention? Oh, the, the antibodies, yeah, they're new. So basically there's four antibodies that you can do, anti-GAD, anti-islet, anti-insulin, zinc transporter antibody. They're a panel of antibodies. When you see a patient newly with diabetes, you can make a pretty strong clinical judgment straight up if you think someone's got type 2 or type 1. If you think someone has type 1, we send off these antibodies for confirmation anyway. But if we're not sure what we're looking at, Often we will send them off. We'll start someone on insulin. If they come back negative, then we would probably change their treatment course if we can to oral agents or these newer injectable treatments like GLP ones that are not insulin type therapies. So they are a handy tool. Another handy diagnostic a tool, like diagnostic lab tool, which can help you stratify someone if you're not sure if they're type one or type two, is actually a C peptide. So C-peptide is a blood test you can do. You match a C-peptide with glucose. So C-peptide is a byproduct of insulin. So when insulin is secreted from the beta cells in the pancreas, it's co-secreted with C-peptide and C-peptide is cleaved off the insulin and as it gets secreted out into the blood. Insulin has a very short half-life, so it's very fluctuating. It sort of only stays around in the system for so long. But C-peptide has a longer half-life, so it's quite nice to use and measure. So often what we'll do is we'll say to someone, right, I'd like to measure your C-peptide and your glucose at the same time. If someone's got a higher glucose and their C-peptide is really high, then that tells me that they're secreting quite a lot of insulin to try and keep that glucose down. Therefore, they're type 2. If they've got a very low C-peptide and their glucose is high, then that tells me that they're not able to secrete the insulin that's required to try and combat that high glucose. So they've got type 1 diabetes or they've got pancreatic insufficiency where they just can't produce insulin. So that's another good tool up your sleeve if you need to some help trying to work out the difference between type 2 or type 1 or pancreatic insufficiency. But yes, the exciting thing about diabetes, particularly for type 2 diabetes, is that we've got a great toolbox of different therapies that we can pick and choose and tailor to the individual patient as to what we might use to help manage their diabetes, but also have benefits with regards to metabolic factors in these patients as well. 
Well, that's brilliant. Let's go through the different types of treatment for type 1 versus type 2. Perhaps you can start off with type 1 and go through the main treatment. Is that mainly insulin replacement? So type 1, only use insulin. And for type 1, you've got two types of insulin. Well, the types of insulin are you've got a basal insulin. So everybody needs a bit of insulin all the time, even when they're sleeping or in the fasting state. So the basal insulin is like background insulin, it stays there throughout the 24 hours of the day and just has a little bit of insulin secretion across the day. Because even when we're fasting or at nighttime, our liver actually produces some glucose. So there's always a bit of need for insulin on board at all times. And then you've got short-acting insulins and you give those when you have a meal. So you sort of look at when you're about to ingest some carbohydrates or glucose, you give yourself a dose of short-acting insulin to combat the glucose rise you would get from a meal and you can also give short acting insulin doses if someone has a high blood glucose and they need to be able to sort of what we call correct and give themselves a bit of insulin to bring that down back into the normal range so for type 1 diabetes you can do basal bolus so you've got a basal insulin that you inject and give yourself throughout the day and then you bolus yourself with insulin at meals or as required if you've got a high sugar and then you've got mixed insulins so you've got Insulin combinations, so they might have a semi-long-acting insulin and a shorter-acting insulin, and you can sort of give yourself a a mixed insulin with breakfast and a mixed insulin with lunch, which has a shorter-acting insulin that sort of combats the mealtime rise in in sugars, but then you've got a sort of medium-term insulin that sort of covers you for that longer basal period. The issue with mixed insulin is you can't vary the dose too much because it's in a set ratio of short- to medium-term insulin. But then you've got pump therapy. So this is really interesting in the type 1 space. So insulin pumps. You've got an insulin pump. So it's a a small pump that's connected to somebody with a subcutaneous needle continuously delivering a short-acting insulin all the time. And what you can do with pumps, which is really exciting, is you set individual basal rates throughout the day because your basal rates might change with periods of activity and inactivity, but also diurnal secretion of cortisol and other hormones. So you can match it with that. And then you also have mealtime insulin ratios and correction insulin ratios that you put into the pump that you can program. So you can get a very nice, tight glucose control with an insulin pump. What's even more exciting is that you can now have these amazing continuous glucose monitors. So I don't know if you've seen these, but they stick to the skin, have a very small subcutaneous needle that continuously measures not the blood glucose or capillary glucose in a patient, but the interstitial glucose in a patient. And that can Wi-Fi to their pump and feed the information of what the glucose is doing in that patient. And you can have an automated basal rate. So the pump has AI in it and algorithms that will slowly rise the insulin dose that it's giving or drop the insulin dose that it's giving based on what the glucose is at the time. You still have to bolus for food, but it basically, you know, minimizes the risk of hypos and actually keeps the patient's glucose within target. And what will eventually come, when I've seen studies in these conferences over in the US, is what complete closed loop system. So what that means is you've got an insulin pump, you've got a a subcut, so a continuous glucose monitor that's measuring the interstitial glucose, and there's specialised AI algorithms in the pump, and patients just go on to live their life, so eat what they want, exercise when they want, and the pump over a course of a couple of days 
the AI and the algorithm works out for that individual patient how much insulin they need when they exercise, when they're fasting, when they're sleeping, when they eat, and the entire insulin dosing is just worked off that specialised algorithm and the interstitial glucose, and the patient doesn't need to do anything. That's truly amazing. Artificial pancreas then? It's basically like, yeah, a automated pancreas, yeah. It's amazing. So that's coming with time. But anyway, so that's type one in a nutshell. People with type two, they've got a lot of different, we've got a lot of different options in the toolbox for people with type two diabetes. Obviously, we still use insulin in people with type two diabetes, but it's not the first up medication of choice unless someone has very high sugars that we need to rapidly get under control. But really, we've got a number of oral agents. So we've got Metformin, which is a pretty well-tolerated, very safe medication, basically first-line therapy for people with type 2 diabetes. It helps with insulin resistance and is very safe. Sort of dose that in people up to about 2 grams or 3 grams a day if we can. In people with renal impairment, you've got to sort of have a lower dose of more, just about 500 milligrams a day. It's very well tolerated. Main side effects are that of gastrointestinal upset and diarrhea. So we often sort of prescribe it at a starting dose of 500 and then slowly up titrate it to about two to two grams or three grams over the course of a month or so. There are immediate release versions or extended release versions. So if someone's having difficulty with increasing their dose due to some some tummy tummy upset, then we can switch. Often I try and switch to a slow release version as that minimizes the tummy upset. But even if patients can only tolerate one gram, but two grams makes them feel a bit sick, the benefit from one gram is still quite great. Then we've got the classic sulfonylureas. They're not really that favored anymore because we've got better agents on the market, but I'll just quickly touch on those. A sulfonylurea, what they do is they stimulate the beta cells to actually produce more insulin. So it helps the pancreas spit out more insulin. That's good generally. I mean, sometimes that is mismatched to the blood glucose. So you can get hypos with sulfonylureas because the pancreas is just stimulated to make more insulin, but the glucose might be not requiring it at that time, but that's a limitation of that drug. They are renally cleared. So you've just got to be careful if someone's got declining renal function, that if they're half, if they sort of hang around and you can cause hypos from decreased clearance in the blood of these medic of sulfonylureas. And we just sort of try and avoid, avoid them in the elderly because cause a hypo and an, el- an older person has an accident and falls over and breaks their hip. That's sort of detrimental. We've got DPP-4 inhibitors. So they're dipeptyl peptidase 4 inhibitors. What they do is they increase an incretin hormone, which is called glucagon-like peptide 1, so GLP-1. And what we know is that GLP-1, and I'll go into this in a bit more, is very important for slowing down gastric emptying and modulating insulin secretion related to food intake. But in slowing down gastric emptying, what happens is you get a a truncated postprandial rise in glucose. So you don't get the postprandial sort of highs that you might see. So so what happens with the DPP-4 is a DPP-4 is the enzyme that breaks down GLP-1. So these DPP-4 inhibitors inhibit the enzyme that breaks down your natural GLP-1. And so therefore you sort of have a a slight buildup of GLP-1 for that action. 
but what we actually have is actual GLP-1 analogs, so glucagon-like peptide 1 analogs, and they, they're injectable therapies. So they come in two forms. There's short-acting ones that you need to inject morning and night, but what is really exciting is we've got long-acting ones where patients can only need to inject once a week, and this works beautifully over the course of the week. So when GLP-1s, what they do is they have a very strong effect on slowing gastric emptying, like I mentioned. So you'd have a decrease in postprandial rise and you don't need as much insulin to deal with, with your glucose after meals. But because they slow gastric emptying, patients feel full, they don't eat as much and they start losing weight. And as patients also start losing weight, their insulin resistance improves and their diabetic control improves. And we see people lose a significant amount of weight on these therapies. Their diabetic control greatly improves. And now it's this drug class that is also approved by the TGA to treat obesity. So these medications are approved by the PBS and the TGA, obviously, to be used in people with type 2 diabetes. But you can prescribe them to help manage obesity because they're very good at reducing weight. So it's like an injectable form of gastric sleeve operation, but it's actually controls exactly. the... Yeah, that's right. And as I don't know if you've heard, but in the media, because these are so popular now, there are nationwide shortages of these drugs because people, they're so efficacious for the management of diabetes and also for obesity, uh, assisting with obesity management. Obviously, with respect to obesity management, lifestyle is key and changing people's lifestyles to diet, appropriate dietary choices, regular exercise definitely helps, but these greatly assist the patient in being able to sort of achieve those lifestyle measures. Now, as a surgeon, I know with diabetic medications, there are some drugs that need to be stopped before surgery because the stress reaction can cause complications. Because they've reduced gastric emptying, do these drugs need to be stopped at the time of surgery or are they say to be continued throughout? These we don't suggest you need to stop perioperatively at all. They don't carry a risk for the anaesthetic, the procedure or the patient in the perioperative period. No, so they're quite safe. The main side effect with these drugs are really nausea and feeling really uncomfortably full because they just basically you know, really stop gastric emptying. So you only have to eat a little bit and you kind of feel quite sated. Very rarely, I think it's about one in a thousand, can it sort of associate with the precipitation of gallstones and a gallstone attack on pancreatitis. I think I've seen one patient who's had an episode of gallstones and had to have their gallbladder removed on this medication. But these are all in all very safe very effective drugs. But patients have got to understand when you explain to them, this is not insulin. You don't have to be, because patients come with quite a phobia of insulin. It's not insulin. You can't have a low blood glucose on this just by virtue of the mechanism. Very safe, likely to lose weight and improve your glycemic control. Then there's the next group, which very exciting again, the SGLT2 inhibitors. So the sodium glucose co-transporter to reuptake inhibitors. Now, I have done some research in this with the concerns that you have. So the SGLT2-induced diabetic ketoacidosis in people with type 2 diabetes. So I'll go into that a little bit, but these drugs are great. What they do is they block the SGLT2 transporter. That sodium glucose transporter sits in the kidney. What that transporter does, it reabsorbs the glucose that's filtered through the nephron back into the blood. 
So like I said, it can reabsorb glucose, but if glucose is very high, that process gets overwhelmed and you'll lose glucose in your urine. But we're exploiting that now. So now we're blocking any reuptake of glucose in the urine. So you actually forcefully urinate out extra glucose. And as a result, your blood glucose will drop. It won't drop to a hypo level because there's SGLT1 in the kidney and that reabsorbs about 10% of your, of your filtered glucose through the nephron. So you can never, don't really hypo on these drugs, but you really urinate out a lot of glucose. What that does is obviously improves your glycemic control because you're losing calories through your urine. People lose a couple of kilos in weight because you're, it's like a diuretic type effect with the excess of glucose and as a result of fluid that follows through the urine, people's blood pressures drop a little bit. And what we have seen is that these drugs in the large randomized control trials have significantly reduced heart failure. And so now one of these drugs, dapafaglozin, is approved for the treatment of heart failure in individuals without diabetes, but also they improve other endpoints like you know death from cardiovascular causes so this is a drug that we like to use in people with type 2 diabetes that we know have either established have established cardiovascular disease but also it improves diabetic nephropathy and diabetic kidney disease so we like to use these medications in people who have type 2 diabetes and either have cardiovascular disease or either have diabetic nephropathy so they're really good the the flip side to these, the two things, obviously, if you're urinating out extra glucose, you've got an increased risk of urinary tract infections or genital thrush. So that is more common, obviously, in your female patient because of differences in anatomy. But it can very rarely but seriously cause diabetic ketoacidosis. And when we first saw these as clinicians, people didn't know what they were looking at because everyone thought, oh, DKA only happens in people with type 1 diabetes. It doesn't happen really in people with type 2, but it, it can. So what happens is these drugs, because they lower your blood glucose, they also lower the ability for the beta cells to recognize glucose and therefore you don't secrete as much insulin. You have a degree, they have a sort of higher degree of background ketones. And on the everyday, these patients are fine. They've got a lower blood glucose, they've got a slightly lower endogenous insulin secretion, they've got a slightly higher background ketones, but they're fine. But if they have a change, so they either get really sick, are fasting, so you get an even lower oral intake of glucose and then drop your blood glucose a bit lower again. If you have a significant stress, so whether that be surgery or a critical illness admitted to hospital and you get an increase in catecholamines, you get increased insulin resistance and that tips the balance to making of having greater insulin resistance, increasing your ketone production and as a result, developing diabetic ketoacidosis. And these patients need to be treated exactly like you would someone with type 1 diabetes and diabetic ketoacidosis with an insulin infusion often need ICU, HDU and you stop the drug. So we advise patients, I started seeing this as a registrar when these drugs came quite popular now we've got good awareness, but we had some cases where various intensivists and ED physicians didn't realise this is what was happening in their patient until sort of down the line. So what we say is you can take these medications, they're great, but if you're fasting, sick or unwell, stop it. And then when you're better, back to your usual health, eating and drinking normally, restart them and you should be fine. And how long does it stay in the system for? How many days before should you stop them? 
Okay, good question. So we don't know for certain, but we know the half-life of these drugs, about 15, 16 hours. So we sort of say three days. If you stop it for three days, you should get a good washout, you know, be more than five half-lives and not have the drug on board. I mean, obviously you may get cases where people are on these drugs and they've got to have, they're having emergency surgery and you don't have time to stop the medication. Well, I would say in that point, do a finger prick ketone, see what their ketones are. If their ketones are up or they're borderline, just start an insulin infusion because that will automatically bring the ketones down and you can take them to surgery, not a problem. Most hospitals will have a guideline on this. While the medication stopped, do you need to use some sort of bridging medication to help control their sugar levels during this period or is it okay just to keep an eye on them and check their BSLs regularly? Well, that depends. It depends what their glycemic control is like. Um, sometimes you can just get away with temporarily stopping the medication. They don't need to be bridged with an insulin infusion. So you could, depending on their glycemic control, stop the medication, they need nothing, or stop the medication and they've got bad glycemic control and you know you need good tight control. So you start them on an insulin, bridge them with an insulin infusion, totally appropriate, very safe thing to do. Or you haven't been able to stop these medications and you've got to take them to emergency surgery or their ketones are up, start them on an insulin infusion. So if you're in doubt, start them on an insulin infusion. But most cases, if it's like an elective outpatient procedure, you could just stop it and not need to bridge with anything. Are there any other types of medications that medical student needs to be aware of or the young, young general practitioner needs to be aware of that are on the, on the horizon or are these, these are the main ones we've discussed? Yeah, these are the main ones. I think um, other medications, I mean, we don't commonly use them, but there's a carbose, which is an oral medication which stops the absorption of carbohydrate in the small gut. So it binds carbohydrate in the gut. You can't absorb it. You can't have a, you don't have the glucose rise as a result, but that can cause, you know, diarrhea and flatulence. So often people don't like taking those, but that is an option. And then there's your glitazones. So pyoglitazone, they are no longer really in favour because what they do is they help, they're very good at improving insulin sensitivity at the tissue level and they decrease the amount of glucose produced by the liver. Very effective in lowering glycemic control, but the caveat is is that have quite bad profile with risk of myocardial infarction, cardiac concerns, and osteoporosis concerns. So these are not commonly used. I think, honestly, I have prescribed this probably once in my current practice in someone where other agents have not been suitable. So we don't, these are no longer in favour. Yeah, they also can, sorry, exacerbate heart failure. So they're not a great drug. They're a dirty drug. One thing that's very important, it's always forgotten, and I should have actually mentioned this up front, lifestyle factors, particularly for people with type 2 diabetes, are key. If you educate your patient on a healthy diet, reducing, you know, processed foods. So I literally say to patients, avoid processed foods. And like, what does that mean? I'll say, well, if you look at a food and it doesn't look like it's come directly from a plant or directly from an animal, don't have it. Does bread look like it's come directly from a plant or an animal? No. Right. That's off the menu. What about nuts? Yes. Okay. You can have nuts. And I sort of go through a bit of it like that. And exercise. Exercise is great. If someone starts doing regular exercise in their routine, that is also almost like taking a whole new therapy. And what happens with exercise is that you people will not only improve their insulin glucose rate profiles at the time of exercise, but there's a lag effect that actually means over the next 24 hours, their glycemic control is a lot better. So regular exercise is very important. Excellent. You've covered so much so far. 
I'd like to finish off by talking about the complications of diabetes, why it's so important to have the sugar levels so well controlled. What are the main complications you see as an endocrinologist and also as the general medical community sees from diabetes? Long-term complications of diabetes can cause blindness. So you get microvascular changes from high glucose levels. In the backs of the eyes, you get aberrant blood vessels. These are very fragile and they can bleed and cause blindness. You can get diabetic kidney disease. So you can just get a decline in GFR or you can get protein that's leaking out through the kidney. So that can be micro or macro proteinuria or albinuria, even to the end of the spectrum with the nephrotic range proteinuria, patients may require dialysis with end-stage kidney disease. Then there's large vessel cardiovascular and peripheral vascular disease, so heart attacks, MIs, ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, strokes, and peripheral vascular disease, the lower limbs, and all coupled with that is you can get diabetic neuropathy, which is a sensory loss predominantly occurring in the extremity, so the feet and moves upwards. So if you get peripheral neuropathy coupled with peripheral vascular disease, we, you end up with diabetic foot with infections and charcos and, and limb amputations. So they're all very serious. And ultimately, if you have diabetes, it does shorten your lifespan. So very important that you keep your the people keep their glycemic control, like glycemic in control to prevent these from occurring, as well as managing metabolic factors like lipid profile, stopping smoking, weight management, and so on, blood pressure and so on. Blood pressure is very important. Well, certainly very serious and such a big area and an important topic to cover. Obviously, diabetic control is important, but also you wonder about how serious sugar is and the sugar in our diets. It's everywhere and it's hard to control. What are your thoughts on this, Emily? Look, it's really hard. And today's society is we are now inundated with these inappropriate food choices. Now, obesity, diabetes, there are genetic tendencies, but there's also significant lifestyle factors. And having to actively choose every time when you're at the supermarket or at a restaurant or at a canteen, even in the hospital, with what is an appropriate choice and not, most of what's presented to us is inappropriate food choices. And you're expecting everyone in the community to have a good understanding of that and abide by that. And it's really, as a community, even on a government health legislation type level, those issues need to be tackled if we really want to take this seriously. Exactly. Look, we've covered so much in this interview and I really appreciate your time. There's so much more I would love to cover, like diabetic emergencies and other issues, but we might have to get you back on for that. Look, I really thank you very much, Emily. It's been fantastic having you on Aussie Med Ed. Well, thanks for having me, Gavin. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much, Dr. Emily Meyer, consultant endocrinologist from the Royal Adelaide Hospital and Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Adelaide. Thanks, Gavin. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I'd like to remind you that the information provided today is just for general medical advice and does not pertain to one particular medical condition or one way of treating a particular condition. If you have any concerns about information raised today, please do not hesitate to contact your general practitioner for further information. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please don't hesitate to give us a like or tell your friends about it or give us a positive review. We look forward to presenting another podcast to you in the near future on a different topic. Until then, stay safe. Thank you very much.